comes from Psalm 78, um, and it's a long one, so so um, strap yourselves in. A masculine of Asaph. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. When they, Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt and the region of Zoan. In spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the desert and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power, the day he redeemed them from the oppressor, the day he displayed his miraculous signs in Egypt, his wonders in the region of Zoan. But they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. Like their fathers, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was very angry. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among men. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was very angry with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men, and their maidens had no wedding songs. Their priests were put to the sword, and their widows could not weep. Then the Lord awoke from as from sleep, as a man wakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, 
With skillful hands, he led them. This is the word of the Lord. But if you were to look at your Bible, Psalm 78 is a lot longer. It chronicles a lot more history. And uh, I uh, urge you to go back and read the whole thing just so you can get, gain a better context. I'm Howard Brown, the senior pastor here at Christ Central Church, and it's good to have Giorgio Hyatt, associate pastor, back. Um, if I went to Hawaii, I don't know, I would think about planting a church there. Don't even think about it. Um, they have enough church planters over there anyway. They, they don't need you over there. Um, so, um, as we continue our sermon series through the Psalms, um, it says here, Mescal, um, uh, Mescal of Asaph. And um, my little footnote, I don't know if you have the same Bible I have. These smart guys already put a lot of this in here. Um, it says here, uh, probably a literary or musical term. And if I were to think about it, I would think maybe a mezcal is like a rap, right? You know I'm always going to go back to hip-hop in, in, in some way. Well, rapper Eminem has his own mezcal, if you will, his own version of Psalm 78. And uh, come from his new album, Relapse, which I highly do not recommend. It's got a song on there called My Mom. Here are some of the lyrics. Oh, yeah. I took out some of the offensive language. Uh, My mom loved Valium and lots of drugs. That's why I am like I am, because I'm like her, because my mom loved Valium and lots of drugs. That's why I'm on. That's what I'm on, because I'm my mom. My mom, my mom. I know you're probably tired of hearing about my mom, but this is just a story of when I was just a shorty and how I became hooked on Valiums. Valium was in everything. Food that I ate, the water that I drank, peas on my plate, She sprinkled just enough on it to season my steak so every day I'd have at least three stomach aches. Now tell me, what kind of mother would want to see her son grow up to be an underachiever? My teacher didn't think I was going to be nothing either. My mom, there's no one else quite like my mom. I know I should let bygones be bygones, but she's the reason why I am high on what I'm high on. Man, I never thought that I could ever be a drug addict. I can't have it happen to me. But that's exactly what ended up happening. A tragedy. The past ended up catching me. And it's probably where I got acquainted with the taste, ain't it? My mom. I'm just like her. My mom. Eminem here is, as I look at Psalm 78 and I look at his words, that song, I I can't help but assume that in a general sense, he is more right than wrong here. That we all have this fear or we've come to this reality that we are doomed to make the same mistakes as the generation before us, as our parents, and without a doubt, pass on our addictions and coping mechanisms to the next. And now we, the generation that sit here right now, find ourselves shackled and singing the same old song and dance as our parents and generations before, just with a different beat and a different flavor. You, You know, can we ever, 
escape family curses? Is there any out to generational sin struggles? Can we break the cycle? This psalm became one of my favorites growing up. Because I think about, you know, when you're a kid, you can, as you get older, you can see some of the mistakes made and you, you want to be better. And I would look at the psalm and, and I would look at, at verse seven and they, it says, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. I used to call this psalm the curse breaker psalm. Anytime I'd be afraid or see patterns in my life, I would read this. Well, some of you are sitting here as testimonies, as examples that, yes, curses can be broken. You're not like the generation before. Others of us are not sure, and and all of us in some way are struggling and, and even fooling ourselves into thinking that it's not true. This psalmist, Asaph, probably... Chief musician in Israel around 1000 BC is the Eminem of his day, rapping a story, the family story with all of the family secrets of the past details of sin and failure that explain and help to explain some of the present day struggles that the generation he is in is dealing with. But unlike Eminem, his sordid revelation uh, gives us hope. In the family secret and story is actually, right in there is the help and curse breaking we are looking for. Because in the family story and staying true, you know, through the vices and lying and moral failure and that long scripture read about, and the moms and dads that are a lot like M&Ms, we see the Lord. He is for the generations and their struggles and for the curse breaking that must take place. Number one, the God of the Bible, then the God of a people of mistakes. And finally, he is a God calling his people to worship. A God of the Bible. God of people of mistakes. And a God who is calling his people to worship. In explaining how this generation and generations to come will escape the degradation of the past and present. The psalmist is letting us know that the story, that the stories of redemption found in scripture, in this Bible right here, all that stuff is, is central, is centrally important to becoming a generation of redemption and lasting change. If we look at verses one through six, oh my people, he says, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from old. In other words, the history, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob. He established a law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. The psalmist is saying this. You and I, and even those who heard it then, need to know the Bible. That you need to know the story. Let what it says instruct your life. All of these old 5,000-year-old stories, some of them, let them be known and speak to you. Let it be remembered and known by you. Let it, and as his tactic here of retelling the story and song confirms, it means that the change, that the generational change happens as we know the stories. To know the history of redemption, that the details matter. All of those long names matter. All of the facts matter, the when and the how and all that stuff. We need to know it. 
we look at verse 9 here, it says, The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done and the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers. The Ephraimites were a tribe of Israel, that half-tribe of Israel that Saul, the, the first king of Israel, came from. And they, they were known to be well-prepared. As a matter of fact, Saul was chosen king, the first king, because the Bible tells us he was tall and handsome and looked like he could could kick some behind, right? Like he was the man. And that when they saw him, all other nations, right, they would they would respect Israel. And the mention of bows here and then later meant skilled in the art of war, skilled in the ways of the wider world, ready to go into the world and take it on and take on the challenges. But the Bible says they got turned back. They failed. They they, they failed. Why? The Bible says they did not remember what God had done. They they knew how to fight. But they don't remember the story, the story of God, the story of God dealing with his people, his commandments and his ways. And the first step to remembering the story is knowing the story, to hearing and telling it. You know, the challenges they faced when they got out there, man, were bigger than themselves. They got out there and they were prepared with, with, you know, how to fight the enemy per se. And then they realized, wait a minute, we don't have the right stuff. Not only in the outside, we have the bowls, but in the inside our hearts are melting, right? When they came against a challenge bigger than them, they had nothing to draw on or anything they thought important to draw on. Like, for example, the story of God and his commandments and stuff like that to help them in ways that all the outside preparation failed to give them in those circumstances. We spend so much money and time and looking around for the right real estate to get our kids into the right schools. Starting now to make sure SAT scores and ACT scores are high so they can get into a good school. We will kill to give our kids an advantage, right? Working extra and getting less so our kids can be successful. Setting up the right associations and relationships with the right families for our kids. We try to find the right kids for them to befriend. We we spend and lose lots of money homeschooling and private schooling. Or we make sure they're in the right athletic situation. Preparing our kids to go out and be the man and the woman, right? I've often said to my boys, it's SAT or NCAA. Y'all going to get a scholarship somehow. But what about the B-I-B-L-E? And I know that sounds corny. But here's a hard question to answer. Would you rather your kid get a high SAT score or have a high Bible IQ? I know I want them to have a high SAT score. Right on the surface, that's what I'm thinking. They get the Bible later. What about, would you rather them have, you know, be in a good Sunday school or a good school? You know, it's okay. They can go to Title I school, but they can have a good Bible education on Sundays if you take them to Sunday school. Isn't that good enough? No. You know, would you rather have good church friends as kids, or do, you, do they have to have that other circle of successful kids to be around? 
But even beyond our kids, what about, you know, the generation you are? Man, our biblical literacy is at an all-time low. We don't know Moses from Abraham. They could be, or Peter, they could be brothers for all we know because we have decided that to make it in the world, the right friends and good investments and degrees and vision. And boy, we know how to relax and go on vacation. And we know how important it is to veg out and to watch TV and stay fit and be trim and plugged into the community and having the right kind of friends again. And we read all types of different kind of counseling types of books and have authentic relationships and go to community group and have all these friends. But we don't ever pick up the word or care about Bible study. What's going on at community group? Well, we're just trying to know each other. That's good. We've forgotten. It's not important. And forgotten in scripture means, it, it, that doesn't mean that they don't remember, they don't know about the God, but we don't consider what he's done in his stories and scripture and scripture important. Important next to the bows and arts of war. Important to who and what we need to be. But this is not just about knowledge, about knowing the stories and the facts. The psalm is saying, not only tell and listen to the story, but teach and learn about the Lord of the stories. Here's the point. The Bible is not just history and facts and old data. It is about the Lord. It's about the God of creation. This is about knowing who and how the Lord is to remember and be able to turn to and trust him based on his history of real performance in the lives of people just like you and me. Look at what the psalmist says here in verse 7. Then what? Once they know all the stuff, what? They would put their trust in God and would not forget. In other words, again, forget, meaning when things get tough, they would remember that here's a viable option, but they would keep his commandments. That's what we get about Ephraim. They were so believing in their ability to turn the tide with their bows and, and, and personal strength. When they came up against something too big or too broad or too low or too wanting in themselves, they forgot not the stories only, but who and how God was. There is not a mind or a heart or even a tongue to, to seek God. We, we know that we need to know and make known and remember and, and cause even our children to remember Him, the Lord, our Lord, the Lord who shows up as the central person of power and providence of the Bible so that He can be there in the real speed and spin of life. We need to teach scripture like he's the X factor in the Bible. He's the living and active part and person that comes in and out of the pages of scripture and really and truly into our lives. I mean, here's the question. Do your, will your children or the people you are called to be responsible for, do you and your pursuit, pursuits to, for greatness know the Lord? That means trust him as a real, as real and responsible. Here is the dark secret the psalmist is telling us that we may be hidden, we may be hidden in the size of our bows that may be hidden. Sorry, this is the secret he's telling us that may be hidden in the size of our bows and our knowledge of war and our so-called moral, cultural prowess and promises to be better than in it all. You know, we must know 
as a current generation and make known to the up and coming generation the Lord and God of the Bible as one to be trusted and turned to and relevant. I gotta thank y'all for VBS. My boys went to V. I was at I was at town in St. Louis, and Kelly's doing a school of the arts, but found a way to get the boys to VBS. And it was like a couple of nights ago. You know, they were like, Daddy, I want, because they listen to music when they go to sleep. Daddy, I want to hear that VBS song. So they're singing, I will not be afraid, right? They're like, praise the Lord, they know some stories. And then they were telling me all the stuff that's going on. And I remember when, the, when it really made sense. Clark got, Daddy, I'm, I'm scared coming in our room. You know, he just wanted to get in the bed and be all up in there. But, Daddy, I'm scared. What about that song? Oh, yeah. I will not be afraid. Why, Clark? Because God's with me? Yeah, you can go to your room. No. Okay. But... <laughs> he thought of it. The scripture, the word, even in song like the psalm. And this is why the psalm, they, said they believe the psalm is put in this for. So the children can sing it so we can sing it. So it's not just something we just read. We sing it and then in the middle of the night when things get dark, we remember the song. We remember the hook, man. <sighs> But before we all go home and design a new Bible competency family plan, I know y'all, I know the wheel's spinning. Or make reading the Bible, going to Sunday school promises, we must look at another lesson the psalmist has for us. Because I don't care how much, here's the hard thing, okay? I don't care how much you prepare the next generation, prepare yourself as the next generation, we will, and our children will, still make mistakes and do stupid things. We can figure out from the drama in this song that the psalmist's deep riddle and saying reveal this. The story of God's people has, is, and will never be a moral story. Because God's never called us to be a moral people. If we look at these scriptures, and I'm not going to read all, through them all again, and I, I hope that you would go back and look, but you, you see the ups and downs. They believed God, then they didn't. God killed some of them, and then they were like, oh, Lord, we repent, and then they went back to doing the wrong thing, right? And it, it, it is clear, isn't it? These folk, God's people made mistakes, and then, here's the deal, they don't seem to learn from their mistakes. Wait a you know, I used to think, man, if I was back in Bible days and I saw manna coming from heaven and I saw quail and I saw that fire at night, I would trust God real good. <laughs> Even sometimes I pray, Lord, let me just see something. Let me just see something incredible. And then I'll believe you. Bible says they saw Egypt. They saw blood. They saw water turn to blood. They saw uh, frog plagues. They saw the firstborn killed. They saw all of this. They saw the water parted. If you look at the full psalm, the stuff we didn't even. They saw all of that. They went in battle just to give an example. They went three of them against a hundred of them, and the three won basically. I'm just kind of give a little, you know, proportion equation thing. They should have lost. I mean, they keep sinning after something bad has happened to them. They talk about the young man being destroyed and the widow's not crying. They kept rebelling and not being loyal to God and making idols, which is the same thing as addictions or messed up relations or vain pursuit of fame and fortune and achievement. That's what idols are. And they test God, which means to challenge God on something you don't believe he can help you with. Mari and I sometimes make this joke about on the movie Glory. 
and you know they have the black soldiers the 54th going and they signing their names and they're like sign up for your thing and one of the the guards the uh people who are giving out the equipment to these black soldiers looks at morgan freeman and says make your mark and morgan freeman i can write my name and so what's the guy's response well write it then and we're, well, who, who are you talking to? Kind of one of those deals, right? Well, this is what it means to test God. Right? Do it then. You think you God? Do it. I got to see this. Like challenging God in something you really don't believe or trust him to do. Do it then. You, God, make it happen. Get to it. Come on, God. That's the demeaning idea of testing the Lord. And then you got this of, of death and punishment, young men dying again, and they go through periods of famine and stress of the spirit. And then on the other side, you see God working and doing all these amazing miracles. They saw all of this and their response was mixed. They act like they trusted and loved God, but they were faking it. Going through the motions, being religious, but not really being changed. They were working to be good, but being good was not working for them, right? And it's easy to assume at first glance. That the writer is making a moral argument of don't be like these people. But believe the scripture here. But I believe the scripture here is saying more than that. He's saying that the story we must tell our children in this generation and tell ourselves as, as the generation now and the next generation is this. We have and will sin and fail and make mistakes. And those are the kind of people God's calling to himself. And calls us people. I mean, it's tempting to be moralist, to teach that, that the lesson and power of the Bible. I mean, I, I want to do it so bad for my boys because I want them to be good. I'm like, be like David and don't be like this person and don't be like me and be like this and, and don't make the same mistakes I've made. We are trying to, and that's it, you know, just, just that much, that moral lesson. And we are trying to convince our kids and ourselves to be mistake free. Don't get pregnant. Don't do drugs. Be the good good drink all your milk to do and be better and it is the right intention but let me tell you it's the wrong power for change doesn't mean you don't say those things doesn't mean you don't hope those things but you shouldn't hope that those saying those kind of moral little be better be like this is the power for change or the power that's going to keep Children, covenant children. And, it, and, and we make it worse when we make it all about being like the good guys in the story, being like the good girls, or being the one who escapes all the troubles with the good decisions. We teach the Bible again like it's an ABC after school special where we are either scared straight by what happens to be to the bad kids or desperately working to be like the perfect kids in the story. And we end up not being scared straight, but straight scared, right? Where we become moralists who are afraid to do wrong. Who, who, who have hidden in dark secrets. That's what I think verse 36 is talking about. We're, we're, we, we become moralists and have hidden in dark secrets tendencies so that when the right vice or situation comes along, the bottom falls out. Every, you know how people think, you know, when there's this good kid that always does the right thing and all of a sudden he does something bad in his right life. What, what happened to him? We thought he was good. The problem was he was good. And that's all he was. Good. Who moved that? 
I mean, he's holding up the family line. He's holding up the story. And, and we, every, you know, get this, when we push our kids to overachievement or ourselves as a way that to escape the pains and mistakes and the hard issues, we simply create not a fulfilled generation, but as with most performance-based generations, like Israel described here in verse 36, we create and become a generation like them, of goody-two-shoe liars, hiders, deceivers, conservative fakers who give lip service and have good behavior for a while, but who are falling apart and empty on the inside. Here is the story. Here is the story. You and your kids and this generation will make mistakes and will fail to begin up. Again, the promise is to be a better dad or a better provider or not be a womanizer or rolling stone like your dad or a working mom like your mom. She worked too much or making our kids not struggle like we financially struggled. And so our kids will not be the nerds like we were in school or not be sexually active like we were or pregnant too young or as uneducated as we are. Man, those are good symptoms and side effects to have, but the wrong goal for real change and revolutionary redemption. Because the story is this. They may and will take much of what is given and forget it and forsake it and do the same stuff or worse. I don't want to believe that. My boy is going to be perfect. They're already starting off wrong. They're going to act act like they are better but hid but you know they, they, what happens is they act like they're better but below have the same heart behind it you know and be the good kids who later go crazy maybe in adulthood once they get out them home schools once they get out them private schools they go and spend up all your money at that $40,000 a year school acting like fools or they do really well at the $40,000 a year school but then when they leave they act like fools or they were acting crazy, fools, people who don't know God or remember him. Okay. Or they, they're in school, right? They're getting the good grace, but they're smoking weed at night, right? I mean, it's just, it's just a sort of, you know, we're doing good. And oh, look at the grades. Woohoo! I love you. Good grades. Don't know what's going on in here. And, you know, I think about it, and I'm scared because it's preacher's kids, PKs, and, and Christianite kids, and new believers and believers get bitter and tired in their faith and would rather forget all the Christian stuff because they didn't learn Christianity. They learned morality. Because they learned a lie. That if they don't do or do this or that, they will be fulfilled and happy and successful and not sin and fail. And when the, when the life they thought they had earned and worked real hard enough to be good enough to get doesn't materialize, they find it best not to remember and better to forget the moral story and its so-called God that condemns and depresses and lies to them. It makes God of being moral and better and gooder and mistake-free or not being like your mom or dad or, or the rest of the black kids or, or the kids from that neighborhood or that city if that's the key then god is a bust and his religion something to be forgotten and antiquated know why because he can't handle my badness and the badness i really feel inside and the and and and, and my world tell the story the psalmist is saying the whole thing i mean i'm I'm saying even your personal stories might not have to get into the gritty details some kids can't handle that. But about how broken you were in your decision making. How good and, and, and your good and bad moral decisions. Talk about the lack of assurance you have and had in yourself. Tell them and, and, and learn about how your heart does not always match the action and the action doesn't always keep up with the heart. Scripture talks about that. My 
heart doesn't match this with my man. Our hearts deceive us. You know, I've had my son ask a couple of times, Daddy, why are you and Mama fuss? Dog, I'm going to explain this to a five minute It's your mama's fault. That's why. <laughs> you have to kind of explain it in a five or seven year old way. Like the psalmist does here in the song that he can grasp and teach and learn the story for you. Declare the truth, man. Prepare yourself. Sober yourself as a generation and the next generation with the true, real story. The Bible teaches we will experience moral failure in our lives and we will not always learn from the good and bad moral stories and experiences in our lives. So what's the point? Look at verse 7 again. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. The curse breaking is calling us as a generation and calling the next generation to not just be moralist. I need to read verse 8. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. He's not calling the next generation us to be moralists or just Bible scholars, but to be worshipers. Worshippers. That ain't as powerful a word, is it? My kid, me, we worship the Lord. What school are you getting into? Hey, this school. Wow, that ain't the top one. We worship the Lord. To be a people who are able to present themselves before God and with whom God is always present worshipers so this curse breaking psalm ironically is teaching us don't dedicate yourself or ourselves to being better or escaping the family curses or making a difference or bringing revolution and change and making mistake free lives but about bringing our lives and living our lives out loud bringing who we are and don't want to be and our fakeness and our fears and being free to live them but before the Lord and to the Lord and not driven and thus worshipping the God of achievement and fear or the God of better than or the God of my parents hopes and dreams it's about living life in the presence of God and living as of God were present with you. That means God presence with us, being centered to our story, faithful to us, committed to us, like a covenant God we read about in the story, to be the person of worth in our lives. I'm not the person of worth in my story, ultimately. My parents aren't the person of worth, ultimately, in my story. But what it's saying is if God is present in the person of worth in your story, you become a worshiper of God. When we did the baptism today, we don't know how this child going to turn out. What do I mean by that? Oh, don't get scared. We don't know what mistakes. We don't know at 14 what she going to be in the scheme of things. Will God be present in her life? Will she be able to go to a God that is present, even in respect, that we will teach and tell and learn and live like the God of the Bible is and will be present in the lives of his people? That makes my life mean something because I respect how I live only because I respect the God who is right there all up in my life and with me. You know, you act differently when mom and daddy come to school, don't you? I, I, I used to think 
I didn't see it till I went to school and had lunch with Harrison, right? Hey, Daddy. Putting his books up, walking in squares. I'm sorry, I'm kind of going long, almost done here. But, and then, no fear, right? Not trying to prove anything to any friends, because he's with Daddy. And all his friends looking up, he's all proud. Don't have to perform. Don't have to do the wrong thing to be accepted because I'm present. What the generation now and the come need to know from this psalm of worship is this. When I go this way, the God of the Bible is there. In my decision making, God is there like he was in the Bible. When I fail, God is there. When I sin, God is there in the way he was with the people in the stories of faith. When I go where I shouldn't, God is there. That in mistake and failure and success and moral collapse and rebellion and fear and things bigger than yourself, God is there so that when I forget, he remembers me. When I rebel, he stays with me. When I test him, he does not fail me. When I fail to be the father or son or daughter or mother or neighbor, agent of generational change that I should be, he will be. That is, that, that is the story and that is the God of the story. We are called to worship him because the one who is the most worthy person in the universe is with his people and that changes everything. Me and you and our children included. So not only go with God's presence, come to where God promises to reveal himself and meet you. The story ends with, with a move of worship from Ephraim to Judah. And the point is this. God is going to be in a place and in a place in a way that is removed from human ambition, human rule and strength and human morality and human failure. The stuff that actually breathes the curse based cyclic living. God has made a place and given a person for us to run to where you can escape the curses and cycle. When I forget, when we fail, when you fall, when we or our kids can't figure up from down, when I doubt that I am God's, when I doubt he's merciful and forgiving and life changing, God is in a place standing still right there where we can see him and worship him and reach him and he reached me. The place, the sanctuary moved from Ephraim to Jerusalem. A sanctuary where we can look and we can find him. And and we can be found is our access to stuff like prayer. And in the word. And in the sacrament. And in the church. But most importantly in the person of his king and savior Jesus Christ. Who like King David described here will not rule and run and drive our lives as condemning performance-based moral living. Jesus does not call you or the next generation to be the hope of the black race or the hope for all women or that your kids must be, you know, better or perfect covenant kids and must respond to our perfect covenant parenting. Or you must be a better father or mother and the fact that your kids aren't doing everything that you're condemned. But he has chosen, like he did David, someone who comes to find us and keep us and love us. And get this, be all that we were supposed to be and do and all that we failed in being and doing. Jesus came to do that for us. He is the person. That changes the generation. Because each generation that comes along, he attaches himself to it like a kinsman redeemer as the person you can turn to and say, family curses stop not with me, but with him. Some of y'all afraid. Fear they'll be like us. 
We're so afraid that our kids are going to do what we did. That like Eminem, my mom is their song. Take hope. Their song is Psalm 78. And your song is too. Because of Jesus. Because he calls you to worship him through the grace and forgiveness offered through him. I don't have to be or make my kids the next generation in my own strength the curse breaker. By grace in Jesus, as my Lord and King, the the curse stops. And I am changed. And a generation that will cause the others not to be because of him. And that ain't no secret. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us turn to you. We're praying for ourselves and for our kids. We see things in us. We're like, we ain't changed. We're not going to make a difference. Lord, you've called us to worship before you, to lay our lives before you, to bring a broken and contrite heart before you, to bring up to the Lord, hey, we tried, we couldn't do it, we're condemned, we failed, we're not the children our parents wanted us to be, and our kids aren't the kids we thought they would be because of our perfect parenting. Lord Jesus, forgive us for such idolatry and morality, and bring us back to the grace of your gospel, that you call people who are sinners to be saints because you are a savior of sinners, that you call people to be a generation that knows the Lord, Lord, because you know us through Jesus Christ. Convince of, uh, convince of, of this. As we turn to your word, we turn to your savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.